There's just so much more to hear. Download our podcasts at DubaiEye1038.com. Book of the Week, what you should be reading. Our book of the week today is non-fiction. Um, it's titled Burnout, The Secret to Solving the Stress Cycle. Reviewing it for us today is Rana Nawas, corporate veteran, president of Business Women's Network Elevate Dubai, and creator and presenter of podcast When Women Win. What did you think of the book? Important question. <laughs> I learned a lot from it. I did. I found it interesting in that it did two things for me. It put science behind things that I know intuitively, but can't necessarily articulate. And it also crystallized ideas that were floating in my head and I didn't have structure around them. You know, like what is emotional exhaustion? You know, it defines it. It tells you, well, here's what an emotion is. Here's what emotional exhaustion is. Um, sleep, loneliness. You know, we all intuitively know that sleep is important, but why is it important and how is it important? And that's what this book talks about. And, uh, and also a lot of tips and tactics on how to complete the cycle. Um, so it introduced a couple of new concepts to me, like stress is a cycle. Burnout comes from you experience stress and then you get rid of it by completing the cycle. And I didn't know what that was until I read the book. So because that is a really big part of what the book is about, and they refer to it a lot, and it's a key part of understanding a lot of the other concepts that come up. Here are the authors, Amelia and Emily Nagoski, talking about the stress cycle and explaining it. The stress response cycle is a biological process in our bodies. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end, just like all the biological processes. Unfortunately, there is a disconnect in modern human life between what activates the stress response and what completes the stress response cycle. So the things that actually cause our stress, like traffic and our kids and money and the fate of the world, are not things that we can escape from, like a lion, which is what the stress response is built for. It's to help us run away from the lion. Amelia and Emily Nagoski talking about the stress cycle and explaining how the stress response cycle works. So once we have that idea, um, what do they do? They start immediately suggesting things that you can do to try and complete this stress response cycle. Yeah, they do. They give you a bunch of tips, everything from affection to laughing to several things. And the biggest one is exercise. So they keep coming back to that. The, you know, and I can hear people cringing <laughs> as bad news, maybe, but the reality is the science is there is no stress reduction technique as efficient and effective as exercising. Yeah, there's actually a really fun paragraph that I've got from the book here that says, you know how everyone says exercise is good for you, that it helps with stress and improves your health and intelligence. And basically, you should definitely get some. This is why physical activity is what tells your brain you have successfully survived the threat. And now your body is a safe place to live, which I thought was a really interesting mm -hmm. way of putting it. So physical activity is the first line of attack. But she immediately goes on to speak to someone who absolutely abhors exercise. And <laughs> Isabel, you're raising your hand there. I, I, I really dislike organised exercise. I, I love if I'm, if I'm somewhere and I can bike because I've got to go from A to B or I'm going for a walk and I'm going into a woods or into sort of nature or I've got a purpose. I have no problem with that. But, you know, going to the gym, I find I really, really have to force myself to do it. But when I come out, I have a halo And that's probably the end of the stress cycle because I feel better and I also feel 
good with myself that I've done it. But what does she suggest for someone who... A pause. <laughs> who, won't, who won't do anything and just says absolutely categorically, no, I am not doing exercise. It doesn't work for me. I only get injured. Because there is an example of that in the book, I think. Yeah, so she has this other technique she recommends, which is the, the tensing and releasing of all of your muscles. Uh, as you, you lie down in bed and you do that, uh, you hold, I think you squeeze for 10 seconds and then release and you keep working up your body. And it, it gets you to a similar end point. Uh, but there are other techniques to complete the cycle. So breathing is one of them. I mean, we know, you know, this breathing, pranayama, etc., deep, slow breathing also tells your body that the, the lion is gone. You can relax now, you know. So that's one. Um, they talk, she talks uh, a lot about, you know, the next three tactics, actually, I'm looking at them, all involve other people, you know, positive social interaction. You know, even a casual hello tells your body, okay, I'm in a social context, I'm relaxed, okay, the stressor is gone. Um, you know, affection. And, and she had some really nice numbers around affection, like how long a kiss should be, how long a hug could be to really start to release the endorphins you need to feel their positive impact. So a lot of these things like breathing, physical activity, things like that, that they're things we've heard before in the context of reducing stress. But I think where the book is at its best is with the examples that she gives. So the thing, small things like um, the positive social interaction blew my mind. So she says, most of us expect we'll be happy if, say, our seatmate on a train leaves us alone, which immediately think, yes, surely that would be the case. But it turns out people experience greater well-being if they've had a polite, casual chat with their seatmate. But surely that depends on whether you're comfortable with social interaction I or think, not. I think that's a really interesting one. So I was on a train uh, coming back from London to Cambridge and um, I'd just seen uh, my grandson. He was one day old. And so I was obviously euphoric. Um, and this homeless person came through. Um, and he was selling postcards. Uh, there were sort of 3D postcards of London. He obviously gets on the train, tries to get, and he said, if anyone's got a few coppers and things like that. And I was sat, have to say, in first class. It was Russia. It was full of business people, except me. And so, and I just thought, you know, I'm so blessed. And so I immediately took one of the postcards. He wasn't begging. And I gave him, I didn't have any change. So he got something more than coppers. I'm not going to say what. And he said, bless you, what's your name? So I told him my name. He said, I'll remember you in my prayers. And I felt so good. It was a very short interaction. And everyone was frowning at me. And then the man sitting opposite me um, said, does this train stop at uh, Royston? And I said, no, I don't think it does. It stops at Steeple Morden. So the other man, so we had this whole conversation. He said, it does stop at Steeple Morden. Um, it does stop at Royston, etc." And I said, I'm really sorry. I know it stops at Ashwell and Morden. That was it. Because the MP... There is an MP, so rumour has it, who lives there. And he's specifically made the train stop at this little tiny village so he can get the rush hour train. And he said, I know the MP. <laughs> so we got into this huge conversation. And, you know, in the end, we were all sort of friendly. So it wasn't planned. And none of those people, I can tell you, wanted to talk. But in the end, we had a really funny laughing because then he got something wrong and I was able to tick him off. So I got <laughs> I got my own back in the end. So, so... 
I think she's right. I think she's right. But we de- definitely in UK, there is this thing. Don't talk to me. I don't know you. I'm not having a conversation. For sure. And this is consistent with one of Malcolm Gladwell's observations in Outliers when he studies this little Italian village in North America where he can't explain the longer life expectancy and the happiness of these people. And at the end, it boils down to the sense of community, the fact that they're there, that people walking in the street stop and have conversations and say hello to each other. Apparently, this makes a massive difference to your happiness and life expectancy. And it was one of the things that I didn't expect to see on this list of very practical Mm. ways of addressing Mm. chronic stress. Having a pet. If you have a pet and you, particularly dogs, you take them out for a walk, you can never be lonely because everyone else who's walking their dog, and I'm talking here mainly sort of UK based, it might not be quite the same here. Um, you, You pass people, you stop, they want to know, you know, how old your pet is and so on and so forth. And again, um, those small interactions are really, really important. You Animals know, are often used in therapy for yes, precisely that are. reason. Yes, they are. We had the reading dogs, didn't we, at the festival, mm. who, who um, children who are maybe uh, not such confident readers can read to a dog who is non-judgmental. So it is, um, it is amazing. And they talk about this petting, the act of petting is as soothing as like a, a human-to-human hug. Oh, it is. It is. And, you know, horses or um, dogs or even cats, if you you will find a thing they like, you know, it's non non verbal, but you will find a particular whether it's their ear that you do it with. Each horse will have a different thing, each dog, each cat. And I love that because it is, you know, their little spot, as it were. But you also get that huge repetitive sort of thing, which is which is really soothing. No, for sure. I liked laughter as well. Mm. Um, so I think I, I like the idea that maybe you don't necessarily have to just go to the gym all the time. You could put on maybe a Netflix special and watch a comedy show instead. Yeah, me too. And I want to experience this. They have these laughter meditations where you go into a room with, you know, whatever, 20 people you've never met and you just start laughing. This is a thing. That's this sounds really you. weird. But it carry does. On. But I, well, I just I can't wait to experience it. But they say even if you smile and it's a false smile, you know, if we all go like this, actually, somehow or other, if we if we make our face into a smile, it does something good for us. And it's the same with laughter. Do you remember there used to be the famous laughing policeman? I probably way before your time. So it's a song <laughs> and it goes on for three minutes with him laughing and you cannot help yourself but laugh. I can remember hearing it as a child and always laughing. The Laughing Policeman. Okay, this was this was a regular song that was played during my childhood, and every time I heard it, and I haven't heard it for donkey's years, I laughed. I couldn't help myself. So here we have the Laughing Policeman from my childhood. I know a fat old policeman. He's always on our street. A fat and jolly red-faced man. He really is a treat. He's too kind for a policeman. He's never known to frown. And everybody says he is the happiest man in town. <laughs> <laughs> They've never, that's probably the first outing of the laughing policeman on Dubai Eye ever, and probably the last two. When I woke up this morning, <laughs> I did not think that I would be playing that on the show. <laughs> but there you go, life is full of unexpected turns and pleasures and, and pleasures. moments for laughter. 
for sure. Just a bit burnout. So I do think, and we live in a city, I think of burnout, when you talk about the, the, the stress of traffic and things like that, and fast moving where, you know, the city never sleeps, and in a way we never sleep. Mm -hmm. And um, it's really hard sometimes to take control of ourselves. And it is, we do have to. It is us, if we want not to be burnt out, burnt out, then we've got to find the secrets. Now, did you feel after having read the book, Rana, that you're going to change some things in your life? It's a great question. I've been working on this for some time. As you know, Isabel, I, I've had, I've been through some stuff in the last couple of years, you know, serious disease. And, and I've been thinking about burnout and about how to do less and how to restart and refresh all the time. So I uh, I don't know if I do anything differently because I have been working on it, but what I really liked is the way it crystallized ideas in my head. I mean, I've always known that I've had to do less, right? We all know that. Um, but for example, I really like the way they distinguish between stressor and stress. You know, there's the cause of your stress, the stressor, which may or may not disappear, right? And then there's the stress that's in your body that you have to manage to stay healthy. Um, so I, I guess there is one thing I would do differently. I will try to sleep more. Mm. The, the signs they talk about on sleep, we've always known sleep is important, but the fact that it says you need to spend 42% of your time resting, that could be sleeping and something active, uh, that was a real eye-opener for me. If sleep is something that you're interested in, side note as well, Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker is an excellent book. I highly recommend it. And of course, sleep is um, made up of different types of sleep. So I have a Fitbit which measures the types of sleep. And I can tell the next day when I look at my, it's not how long I've slept, it's the quality of my sleep. And it really does depend on how, um, how my bedtime routine has gone. You know, so if I'm on the laptop and then just go to bed, if I'm you know, stressed before I go to bed, I can guarantee the quality of my sleep is certainly not as good. Mm. And I, you know, things are going on in my mind. I haven't given myself. So when they talk about rest, it's not just sleep. They're talking about also the wind down. You know, you might have a ritual, you might read, you might listen to meditational music, you might have a, have a warm drink, you might have a bath. We need to find ways and we need to give ourselves that opportunity. You can't just say, well, I'm gonna, I, I need to get 10 hours sleep. I'm going to work, et cetera, et cetera, and put my laptop down and jump into bed. It's not going to help you. It's not going to happen that way. One observation that I really liked um, about this book is that they say the good news is that stress is not the problem. And they acknowledge the fact that you can't just get rid of all the stress in your life, which I think when you think of burnout, you immediately think, OK, I need to just, like you say, do less. I need to take away all of these things out of my life. But there is, there's still going to be stresses that you don't plan on in life. So they're all about dealing, finding ways to deal with that, regardless of what comes up, whether you've planned for it or not. And they say the problem is that the strategies that deal with stresses have almost no relationship to the strategies that deal with the physiological reactions our bodies have to those stresses. To be well is not to live in a state of perpetual safety and calm, but to move fluidly from a state of adversity, risk, adventure or excitement back to safety and calm and out again. Stress is not bad for you. Being stuck is bad for you. And I really like that distinction. Hmm. Yeah, I like that they talk about wellness as not a state of being. It's a state of action. Yeah. It's an oscillation. The mm. norm, Our normal human process is to switch between states, and that's okay. And I think that's why I've been frustrated with the term wellness for so long, because in my mind until this book, it's been something, it's been this calm state that you 
don't have time to get to, if that makes any sense. Mm. And stress is, in some ways, it, it's a good thing. It's not, it's not a bad thing. It's sort of, you know, we all know when we've got something happening that, that we may, the level of our stress may be high, but we need it. You know, otherwise we'd just be sort of slouching about and um, would not be able to respond to whatever it is. But it's also people, individuals, all of us have different ways of responding and different things that stress us. You know, that that we have to know what stresses us mm. um, and sort of, you know, flag it up that when this happens, I get inordinately stressed and it will be different for each of us. You know, there could be things that, you know, some people and it might be pictures are not straight on walls and they can't bear it if they go to someone's house. Um <laughs> And it, it, it actually is that you, a, Isabel? No, no, <laughs> that's no. me. <laughs> yeah, but I, I have I have very good friends who they because they know me they'll just straighten them all up when they come you know, and then they sit down and relax. Um, there are I don't like cushions that are not puffed up. <laughs> you know, I mean I don't think it's stressful, but it's just things that maybe irritate me. But therefore, if it's irritating me, I feel stressed. You know, if if the plane doesn't you know, um, is going to be late or train or things change. I can cope with that. Those are the kind of things that I know I can cope with. And I just think, well, there's nothing I can do about it. I remember, I think it was the Dalai Lama um, in his book, The Art of Happiness. He said, you I have to... I thought you were going to name drop having met the Dalai Lama for I a wish. minute there. Oh, I wish. I read his Art of Happiness book and, and it, it in many ways changed my life. So what he says is, you have to say... Is this something, so when there's something there, for example, it rains, can you actually do anything about it? No, you can't. So don't get stressed about it. That should not affect your happiness. But there are things you can do something about. Then you have to decide what what your action's going to be. So you can straighten up pictures, you can puff cushions, but you can't stop the sun shining or the rain or, or, or you know, bad weather or things like that. So... Don't expect, don't get stressed about things that, that are out of your control. Does that make sense, do you think? Yeah, definitely. And they talk about frustration in the book and what it actually means that it's the difference between, uh, you know, the amount of effort you put in and progress or your ex mismatch of expectations, right? So, well, why don't we reorient our expectations instead of getting frustrated? Mm. That's something that comes up in uh, Soul for Happy as well by Mo Gaudat. The fact that one of the biggest setbacks in terms of happiness is... You know, we, we, we expect too much. And so we're already going to be let down by whatever happens, mm. whatever outcome mm. to the situation. So you can still dream. And I think I think this is a very important thing that we should not limit our dreams. But you always need to have, you know, this is what I would really like to do. But I may not be able to get there. What is the worst case scenario? What is the worst? So you've got that in your mind, but you still go. If you don't reach exactly where you want you may have got halfway there which is better than just saying oh it's impossible mm. you know we don't live in a city of impossible do we no um isabel asked you rana if the book has been helpful to you and you said that there are already things that you've been working on um but it kind of underlined a few of those things for you to someone who maybe isn't already working on those things would you would you recommend it to someone who's actually burnt out i mean i know you have a million things to do here but read this book is that a great idea to do I, to someone? I would recommend this book. I would simply because it covers a lot of ground. And I, I'm, I'm sorry to come back to sleep, but 
it is so underestimated, I think, in our culture, in our work life. And, you know, sleep is like food. And we need to talk about this more and we need to do it more. Um, one thing that I think every, the reason, the main reason I think everyone should read this book is because it talks about the human giver syndrome which I had not come across until I, I opened this book. I love that. The human being and the human giver. Are we not all human beings, though? Please explain this to us. Quite... <laughs> yeah, apparently not. Um, so the human giver syndrome is this contagious, I'm going to quote from the book, it's a contagious belief that you have a moral obligation to give every drop of your humanity in support of others, no matter the cost to you. Uh, this thrives in the patriarchy, the way the mole, the way they say, the way mole thrives in damp basements. The point here is that uh, the world, the the authors argue, and I tend to agree, is divided into two groups of people: human givers and human beings. And that's why, for example, uh, you know, women, we there's this expectation on how women should behave. You know, we should be pretty, we should be quiet, we shouldn't, uh, you know, we shouldn't complain, and all of this. Um, and give, give, give to support the being of others. And we see this from mothers to women in the corporate world. This pervades everything we do. And it was really interesting because I'd never come across that term. It was interesting to be exposed to it. You know, things like it tells us that it's self-indulgent to look after oneself. You know, women feel guilty all the time, right? If I go have a massage, oh, it's guilt. If I go, you know, and, and it's because... We're supposed to be human givers and not, and every ounce of our energy is supposed to be given to someone else and not ourselves. And this is, this is historic. It goes back, yeah. you know, in, in, in most societies, I would say nearly all societies, if you go back in time, the, that's what the woman's role was, you know, to, to provide, to give and give and give. And um, uh, it's the guilt. You know, you can't have it all. We go back to the Sheryl Sandberg book. I, you know, I don't believe you can. It is always about choices. Do not think you can be all singing or dancing as a female. Um, you have to make choices. And those choices should include time for yourself to do things you enjoy, you know, to meet friends, to have time alone and so on and so forth. We all need that. We all need that. Um, and I think... Um, we as females are more subject to burnout than men, although men also face burnout. Mm -hmm. um, women um, set themselves up to be burnt out. Yeah. I thought that there were a lot of really interesting studies and examples as well that are valid, you know, whether you're male or female. Um, there was the, the owl and the cheese, I thought was an interesting story. So they had... Um, uh, a bunch of rats given were given a maze and there were rats that were put into a maze and they had to reach Can to I get just, to the end. They weren't real rats. They were human beings that had this is what I read, maybe I've got it wrong. They were they were they were play rats, not real rats, and there was play cheese and there was a play owl. And these little groups, then human beings, had to get them through the maze mm. uh, to get the cheese. And um, the ones that didn't have the owl as the predator, yeah. as the threat, got there a lot quicker. The human beings uh, won uh, for it. So what, so what they said was the moral of the story is we thrive when we have a positive goal to move toward, not just a negative state we're trying to move away from. Yes. Which I thought was interesting. Yeah. So, 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 the, so the carrot rather than the stick, which is, you know, anyone who's got children will agree that um, carrots um, and distraction work better than any kind of um, threat. 
But back to some of the more gender-focused discussions, because they are interested particularly in this in the book, because we were just talking about human givers and human beings. There was another study where they found that um, female rats who'd been exposed to stress, when then put in a pool of water, would swim for twice as long than male rats. So they kept trying to carry on twice as long as the male rats in the same study. And they used that as an example of how we constantly feel like we have to try and do everything and keep going in spite of stress and in, in spite of burnout. Yeah, I mean, we always talk about how what good multitaskers women are and how resilient we are. And that's, yeah, it can be done, but it's not necessarily good for you. And that, the, uh, you know, females feel they have to to sort of get to the top of the, say, the corporate ladder, they have to work twice as hard as any male. Um, and I think that, you know, it's almost as if they're, a, you know, um, a diverse um, special group as to why, why they would have to work twice as hard to prove themselves. Um, and I think that's what women often will do, that if they're put in a situation, say they're on a board and things like that, that, you know, they, they, they feel... Um, not in a secure position many a time, even today. Yeah, I mean, there's there's lots of data that backs that men get promoted on performance. Uh, sorry, pardon me, that men get promoted on potential and women on performance. So women have to demonstrate that performance before mm. they get the next step, whereas men, it's sufficient to demonstrate potential. So there is a gap. I, it's real. And as they, they call it in the book, you know, the game is rigged, right? And... Um, they they really put a lot of flesh around these bones. Uh, for example, the patriarchy. What is the patriarchy? They define it. They talk about it. Um, being gaslit. I had never heard the term gaslighting before I read the book. I, I really still don't know what it means. Mm. Can we say? Can you, yeah yeah yeah. Um, so it's when you 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 suffer some sort of some kind of discrimination. And you are told that that can't exist. You're imagining it. Mm. You've been gaslit. So when it goes, it applies to everything from racial discrimination to gender bias in the workplace. That, oh, you just imagined it. Mm. And so I, actually they, they talk about it beautifully in, in the book. The way, you know, when you read the definition, you're like, oh, my God, that's me. I've been gaslit. Um, so they, so if I may quote from the book, yeah, sure. um, it comes from the movie Gaslight, the movie with Ingrid Bergman. I personally haven't seen it, but basically her husband starts flickering the lights to make her crazy apparently. And she says the lights are flickering and he says, nah, nah, you're imagining it. And, and so it turns out, and she, she starts to believe that she's going mad. So that's where the term comes from. Yes. Okay. It comes from the movie. Mm. Yeah. It's not actually scientific. Question about this book. So th they do acknowledge the fact that it's written from a Western perspective and a lot of the examples that they give and the background that they're coming from is particularly US-based. And I find that a lot with nonfiction books and sometimes it matters and sometimes it doesn't. For people reading this book here, do you think it matters? And that's something that we definitely need to take into account. No, I think a lot of the, the concepts that they talk about are human concepts. Uh, you know, whether it's something like wellness, uh, sleep, physical activity, affection, discrimination, being gaslit. I mean, these are all global things, I believe. I know, Isabel, what do you think? Um, I think it is global. I think it, it is everywhere. And I think um, that we also have to understand that 
um, we're all individual and it's sometimes very difficult to understand um, other people's issues, you know, that, that they are um, discriminated against for, you know, being female, discriminated against because of their gender or culture or, or any of those other things and not given the same opportunities that they deserve. And it's it's a re it's a really it's a really hard one. But if you are if you perceive yourself as being discriminated against, you need to find a solution. What I would say is there is um, so many ways to get to the top of the mountain. And if you are finding that there's a block, you need to look for another path because the world is not going to change in a minute. So anyone who feels that they're being blocked because they're female, because of their background or things like that, set yourself the task of trying to find another way to get where you want to. Because there are, it's all about finding a solution and getting to the top and then pulling up as many other people as possible once you reach there. Mm. And I think another global uh, concept that they explore in the book is loneliness. Like, I didn't know the impact of loneliness on your wellness, on your health, on your life expectancy. You know, and they talk about, they've measured it. And if you're lonely, that's the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day, the impact on your life expectancy and your health. Um, and I think loneliness is a global epidemic now. And the need for connection, they talk about how the need for connection with people uh, is not... Um, is not a luxury. It's as necessary as food and water. So this idea that the world has gone to that, oh, if you're so strong and powerful, you do it on your own and you can be on your own, that doesn't work at a human level. We're going to have to wrap up now, but thank you so much for coming in to talk to us about Burnout by Amelia and Emily Nagoski. Final thought, recommendation, how many stars out of five are you going to give it? Three and a half, just because it was sometimes a bit difficult to read. Uh, but the content is great. I would say read it and sleep more. Okay. Thank you so much, Rana, for joining us. There's just so much more to hear. Download our podcasts at DubaiEye1038.com.